a few other things that I, I needed to mention this morning. One, uh, this past week I got a message from Connie Schumann that Mark, that we had been praying for, not only dealing with the effects of the brain tumor and all that's taken place there, uh, is being treated for congestive heart failure as well. And we need to keep Mark in our prayer. Also, uh, if you would, please keep uh, Gay Cahoon in your prayers down in Florida. We need to be in prayer for her. And then today is our last Sunday with Ron and Sharon Jennings. They're going to be heading out for family and then back to Florida. So I uh, always love it when they're here, but always sad to see them go. So before they leave today, make sure uh, that you, you wish them well and, and pray for them. Well, this morning, uh, it, is, it is not only great to be here, uh, but it's a welcome thing to come to community, to come to fellowship. And uh, if you have been participating in the 21 days of prayer, uh, it's, it's sad for me that we're almost done. We've got three more days. We're going to conclude this week. And uh, for those of you that have commented on social media, uh, even connected with some folks that have been, haven't been here for a long time, I just want to thank you very much. Uh, in, in the words of Jerry Maguire, as corny as they may be, you complete me. Uh, at least you validate me as a minister in that sense. Uh, but let me ask you, is there anybody here like me when you were a kid, Christmas was absolutely one of the best days ever, honestly. Uh, anybody feel like that when you were a little kid? Let me just ask you this. Anybody also feel like as a little kid the first day of school was one of the worst days ever? Uh, you know, you, were, you had to face another year of, of eating those soybean burgers in the cafeteria. Uh, and I hated the first day of school because of my name. Anybody here have a name that was slaughtered uh, easily during roll call every time you went to class? Mine always did. Now, my last name is pronounced Warax. It's a peaceful name, I know, for, for a preacher to have. It's spelled like war and an axe. Uh, my parents named me William, but all the way from kindergarten through middle school, for some reason, and some people still today, and my hair on the back of my neck stands up, uh, through that period of time, they called me Billy Ralph. Now, unfortunately for that, I, every time I hear that name, I think of that little kid on, on the Christmas story, you know, the one of the Red Ryder BB gun, you'll put your eye out. That's the kind of Billy Ralph kid I think of. But every day on the opening of Roll Call, the first day of class, they would call out, is Billy Ralph Borax here? No, no, he's not here. Uh, or is Billy Lorax here? Yeah, that's me. I'm here. Dr. Seuss named me. I speak for the trees, you know. Um, no, no, we were, we're looking for, for Billy Ralph Borax, and that would just drive me nuts. Uh, it was bad enough to always be one of those that was alphabetically arranged, you know, at the last of every line. But have to explain to everybody, no, it's war, you know, like this, and axe, chop, chop, like this. It still happens. So if you ever see me at a restaurant when we're waiting for our table to be called, doing that to a waiter or waitress, I'm just trying to give them my name. Or we're sitting there and they're saying, wax, table of four, wax. Um, it's a good thing. I know who I am. Now, I don't know if you've ever been a victim of identity theft. Uh, some of you probably got hacked when hackers targeted a certain department store a couple of Christmases ago. But it goes on all the time. And it's definitely on the rise. And yet, from my vantage point, it seems like identity theft has been going on for a long, long time. It's been my experience that your identity can get ripped off by relationships. 
Your identity can get ripped off by success. It can even get hacked by the image staring back at you from the mirror. And there's nothing quite like the past for wreaking havoc with your identity. I mean, your past may seek to use, abuse, and absolutely paralyze you. It can do that, can't it? Now, I don't know what it was for you. Maybe it was a DUI. Maybe it was an affair or a failed marriage. or Maybe it was a financial collapse. Maybe you cheated and you got caught or you got flunked out of school. Maybe you got kicked out of the house when you were young. Or maybe you were fired from the job. Maybe it's an abortion that still haunts you. Or all kinds of different sexual experiences you had in your life. Maybe you were the victim of verbal abuse. And ironically, you grew up learning how to dish out pretty good yourself. Or maybe your identity for a while was inmate number 345897. Or maybe you were used to introducing yourself for the last five years. Hello, my name is, I'm an alcoholic. Maybe for you the struggle has been pornography, but, but what you did back then, whatever it was, it still seems to define you today. In fact, it's become who you are. You see, the past has hacked deep into your soul and stolen away your true identity. So I've got to tell you, I have been praying as hard as I know how as a preacher this past week that you might hear God say to you this weekend, on this day, your past may seek to use, abuse, and absolutely paralyze you, but friends, it does not need to define you. That's not who you are. Your past does not define you. And there is grace in Jesus Christ for every one of you. And friends, for me, that's something worth thanksgiving for. Now last weekend we stepped into the shoes of what I think was a really moving encounter that Jesus had with a social outcast. You remember the guy who was literally quarantined from society Quarantined from his family and his friends. He was seen by everyone as someone that was unclean and someone who was cursed by God, untouchable. But Jesus touched him. And Jesus healed him. And Jesus gave him life. You see, I believe when Jesus came to this earth, he didn't just come to lay down his life for the penalty of our sins, which is a huge thing, right? I think he also came to this earth to show us what God was really like. And so today I want to unpack one of my favorite accounts in the New Testament of the Bible that just blows away, I think, any preconceived uh, notions or presuppositions you might have about who God is. And it comes to us in John 8 in the New Testament fourth gospel in the New Testament. And in this story, in John 8, words like embarrassed, ashamed, guilty, exposed, broken, trapped, afraid, those words describe her. And words like judgmental, arrogant, proud, uh, angry, sinister, scheming, abusive, heartless. Those words describe them. And words like calm, caring, compassionate, together in complete control, that 
was him. And we read about him first in John chapter 8, verse 1, where it begins this way. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. But early the next morning, he went back again at the temple, and a crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. Now, as he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, they brought a woman who had been caught in the act. They put her, and some versions, I think, accurately say they threw her, stumbling in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says... To stoner, what do you say? And then John tells us they were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. We learn in each of the Gospels that Jesus frequently taught in the, in the temple in Jerusalem. So the Pharisees knew there would be a lot of people, a crowd around him that could serve as, as witnesses. And these religious leaders, they had been conspiring for some time now to get rid of Jesus. And Dr. Luke tells us this. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among them were trying to kill him. Yet they couldn't find a way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Like God the Father did in Job 40, verse 8, the son now faces, Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me just to justify yourself? And Matthew tells us the Pharisees, they went out and they laid plans to trap him in his words. So you see, this is all just a a big power play. This is all just a, a political grab for power for them. They're trying to destroy his credibility with the crowds that have just come to adore who he is. If Jesus says outright, that this woman should not be stoned to death, well, then he would be violating the letter of Moses' law. If he were to urge them to go ahead and, and stone her, he would be violating the Roman law, which forbid anybody uh, that was Jewish from carrying out an execution or pronouncing sentence. And Jesus knew right from the start, this is a trap. Plus, the Jewish law in cases like this, it required for both the man and the woman to be brought. So where's the guy? This is an obvious setup. And I don't know how it went down. Maybe these religious leaders went to one of the Romans who wouldn't be under the Jewish moral law and said, hey man, we'll give you $100 if you could sleep with this woman, if you could seduce her. What girl? What woman? This one over here. Okay, I'll do it. Maybe it was, it was a, a Jewish person they went to and they promised them, you know, God will forgive you if you do this because we're doing this just to protect God's reputation in the temple. But however it played out, they set up the whole thing. I mean, how else do you catch a person in the act of adultery? They knew who she was, they knew when she would be there, where she would be, and they let the man slip away. They were just using this girl. And the Pharisees... They did that a lot. They used people. These spiritual leaders devalued the lives of the people they were supposed to be serving. Extreme legalism that blinded them to God's identity and his grace. They could not see the intrinsic worth in people. And this girl, like the sex traffickers of our day, they just used her. They saw her as a means to an end. And so they set her up, 
They grab her in the act, pull her out of bed from the house. They drag her through the streets into this crowd, probably with nothing more than the sheet that she could grab off of the bed. And they throw her down right in front of Jesus, exposed in front of all these people and Jesus. I shared with you before, and I'll always love the story that Matt Chandler told in his ministry. And he said God called him during his freshman year of college, and he and his friends, he would sit next to this 20-year-old single mother that was just trying to get by and earn a degree, and she'd made a lot of bad choices in her life. And she was trying, though, to understand God. And he said, we had a dialogue about the grace and the mercy of Jesus on the cross. And, and some of the other guys that he knew, they'd go over and they'd babysit her little kid to just kind of give her a break. And, and they would talk with her, helping her get to know God better. One day, one of his friends was having a, a concert and he invited him to go. And the speaker of this conference stood up and here this girl was sitting next to him. And he handed this rose, and he said, he said this was just an awful illustration. It was an awful conversation. He just, he talked about sexuality. And he did it in such a way that was just nothing but heaping guilt and abuse on people. And he held up a long stem red rose, and he said, this rose is beautiful. This rose is, is perfect. Now I want you to take it, and I want you to pass it around. I want everybody here, and it was a, it was a large gathering of people. He said, I want every one of you to smell it, to hold it. And as it went through, you know, the, the leaves fell off, the petals began to fall. And toward the end of this awful talk on sexuality, he said, where's my rose? And they brought it back up to him, and it was drooped over. It just it looked awful. He said, and this is what sexuality outside of God is truly like. Who would want this rose now? This rose has been touched by everybody. Nobody wants a rose that's been passed around like this. And Matt said, I just kind of cringed inside. And I looked over at this young single mother who was just bowing her head, tears just forming in her eyes. And she could see the, the shame and the guilt and the grief on her face. And he said, more than anything, I wanted to shout out when he said, who would want this? I wanted to say, Jesus does. Jesus would take the rose. In fact, Jesus would pay anything for that rose. And he would. And he did. Romans 5.8 says, For God demonstrated his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. When our petals were falling off and our leaves were wilting, Christ died for us. I want to show you what I've always felt is one of the coolest phrases in the entire Bible. It's just four words, but they may forever change the way you look at God. And they come in verse 6 at the end. Jesus stooped down. Isn't that cool? Jesus stooped down. Why? Because that's where she was. He got down on her level. Everybody else was, was towering judgmentally above her with rocks in hands as she is sitting there down in the dirt. She's just trying to, to grab some dignity, trying to cover up her nakedness. She is scared to death. But Jesus stooped down. He still does. You see, God gets down and dirty with us. He stooped down to meet me and you right where we are, right in the dirt of this world to be with us. And that is such an incredible thought to me that God would do that. 
And some of you this morning, you probably still think that God is just towering over you in his holy wrath, waiting to just drop the hammer of his judgment on you. But quite the contrary. God stoops down. Now, I love what the psalmist said when he conveyed in, in Psalm 94, 18. I cried out, I'm slipping. But your unfailing love, O Lord, it supported me. God was close enough. He was near enough. He was caring enough to catch him when he was slipping. And if ever there was a passage that talked about how down and dirty God would get with us, it's one that the IAHers will share this evening. And I hope you're back here at 6 o'clock for the IH ring ceremony. It's in Philippians chapter 2 where it says that Jesus being in the very nature of God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being found in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even to death on a cross. That's God getting in the dirt of our world, right down to the shame and the regret of our lives, right into the middle of your pain and mine right in the middle of embarrassment, right in the middle of those experiences you wish nobody knew about. And I just want to say that if you would take a moment to look up, you would find him there with you. John 8, 6, Jesus stooped down and he wrote in the dust with his finger. Now as he was writing in the dirt, in the dust with his finger, a lot of scholars have conjectured, you know, what was he writing? A lot of different things. Some believe he was writing down the sins of the crowd that were there to stone this woman so they could see their sins and that God was aware of them. Maybe some some people believe since God wrote the Ten Commandments on the Mount Sinai with his finger that that maybe he wrote down the, the Tenth Commandment, you'll not covet your neighbor's wife. And that would declare them all guilty. I don't know what he wrote. But as I think about that more and more, I think with a crowd around him, surely they all couldn't see what he wrote in in the dirt that day. I bet what he wrote there, it was for her eyes only. I bet what he wrote there was just close enough for her to see this, this downcast, broken woman who was not making eye contact with anybody. She's staring down at the dirt, and I think he wrote something for her. Maybe he scribbled out the Aramaic words for the emotions and the experience that she was enduring. Maybe he wrote the word ashamed, and he swept it away. Maybe he wrote the word worthless, and swept it away. Maybe he wrote the word used, or unloved, and and swept it away. Filthy, naked, guilty, and he swept it away. Maybe he wrote, God loves you. Verse 7. They kept demanding answers, so he stood up again. And he said, all right, but let the one who's never sinned throw the first stone. And then, then he stooped down again, and he wrote in the dust. I love that. He he stands to respond to them, but then he's right back down at her level. And maybe this time, maybe this time he started writing the names of of her accusers and their sins. Maybe for her he wrote, forgiven. You know, I, I need that story in Scripture to remind me that that I don't have any right to throw rocks at other people. 
It, it reminds me of the rock that I crawled out from under when I came to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Because we all have a tendency, don't we? To stand over fallen people, sinful people with rocks in hands, ready to throw from our self-righteous judgment with disgust and say, can you believe their lifestyle? Can you believe who they're, who they're with? Can you believe what they're wearing or not wearing? You know, I knew she had a reputation like that. Look, look, you get what you deserve. And while people are busy picking up stones, Jesus stoops down and he gets eyeball to eyeball with fallen people. And his eyes are full of grace and truth. Verse 9. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with this woman. To me, you know, that would make an awesome scene in a movie. You have this dramatic music sustaining tension, you know, in the background. And, and Jesus and the woman, they're first blurred out and the focus is on the hands, just kind of hanging at the sides of these people, holding on to the rocks. And, and, and you just hear as the music builds and you see their fingers start to, to loosen. And poof, the rock hits the ground, a little cloud of dust pops up. It goes from one to the other, and, and then you see footsteps walking away, and the focus kind of comes in on Jesus and this woman in a crescendo. You know, I think we all have, have a little bit of that movie director inside of us. But can you imagine the emotions that must have been going through her at this time? I mean, put yourself in her shoes. What would you be feeling? Confused? <laughs> a little bit? Ashamed? Embarrassed? Grateful? I imagine she can't shut off the flow of tears that are hitting the ground. And where Jesus has been riding in the ground, there's little dark circles starting to, to mingle with that from her tears. Verse 10. Then Jesus stood up again, and, and, and I think he, he probably took the hand of this woman and stood her up with him. That's just his nature. You know, he, he's not going to leave her down in the dirt. He never, ever towers over fallen people. He stoops down, maybe helps her up, maybe embraces her, dries her tears. And to perhaps, with his hands on her shoulders, he says to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Jesus, the one that came full of grace and truth, said, listen, you're not guilty anymore. You've been forgiven. Now go and live a life with thanksgiving for what I'm giving you, a second chance. Change your lifestyle. Change your choices because here's the truth. It doesn't have to be like this anymore. You don't have to keep looking for love in all the wrong places because right now in this moment, you're standing nose to nose, face to face with unfailing love. You are accepted. You are priceless. In fact, you are so worth it. The God of the universe has stooped down in the dirt just to be with you. Now go and sin no more. What do you think was in her mind even as she walked away? You see, gang, we're told in John 10.10 10, that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus said, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. 
He gets down in our dirt, down in the dirt of our envy, down in the dirt of our lust and our greed, down in the dirt of our addictions and regrets and failures and our self-sitterness. Why? So that he can lift us up. He came to lift us up, to forgive us, embrace us, to free us, to, to change us. And that kind of grace really is for everything. Your past can be a thing of the past. You know, I was thinking this week how, how guilt is really a strange and weird emotion to deal with. They asked a whole bunch of little kids what a guilty conscience was. I wanted to share a couple with you. This little six-year-old girl said, a guilty conscience is a pot inside of you that burns if you're not good. Little seven-year-old boy said this, a guilty conscience is feeling bad when you kick girls and little dogs. <laughs> yeah, boys and girls are different. And what they're saying is, I can't explain it, but there's something inside of you that says, I just crossed the line there. Something inside of you that says, you know, that wasn't right. That, that didn't feel right. I heard of a counselor once that came up with this acrostic on guilt, and he said that guilt from God's perspective is actually a very good thing. In fact, guilt from God's perspective stands for this as an acrostic, God's unique, intentional, loving treatment. In its purest form, it's a very useful, very effective thing. It's like that check engine light on your dashboard that comes on to let you know there's something wrong going on under the hood. And God put that emotion within all of us to say, you know, you've got something there. You, you need to deal with it. So from God's perspective, guilt can be a really good thing. But as you can imagine, the original identity thief, he takes what God meant for good and he distorts it. He takes it to the other extreme. And here's the acrostic from Satan's perspective. You see, guilt from Satan's perspective is grief united in lifelong torment. Grief united in lifelong torment. You, you see how that fits his agenda? To steal, to kill, and destroy. You see, he loves to see you and me stay in the dirt. He loves it when our past dominates us. He loves us when our past goes unresolved because if we never deal with the guilt, it morphs into its sinister cousin called shame. And shame is a whole deeper cancer to deal with. Lewis Smedes describes it this way. The difference between guilt and shame is very clear in theory. We feel guilty for what we do. We feel shame for what we are. A person feels guilt because he did something wrong. A person feels shame because he is something wrong. Guilt attacks what we do. Shame attacks who we are. And Satan loves to steal our identity. I had the privilege of hearing Fred Craddock speak when I was back in school and studying preaching. He used to tell the story about how when he was on the staff at the Candler School of theology at Emory University in, in Atlanta. But he and his wife needed a vacation, and so they, they took a trip like many of you have been uh, to Gatlinburg, Tennessee. And they stayed at this little quaint cabin beside a mountain stream. And, and on their first night of their getaway, they decided they wanted to go out to eat. And so they went to this little mom-and-pop restaurant, not, not a fancy place, you know, wooden tables and chairs, uh, plaid tablecloths, excellent down-home cooking. 
As they waited for the mule to be served, they noticed this old fellow that, that came in and, and, and started visiting each of the tables. He had overalls on. I mean, he looked every part of the mountaineer. He made his way around the room from table to table, greeting guests. And, and Fred Craddock thought, oh, great. Here we are. I came all the way to Gatlinburg to get away from everybody that knows me. I'll bet you this guy, he's going to come and talk to me. He's going to sit down. He's probably going to recognize me. He's going to know who I am. And, and there goes our nice, peaceful evening. And sure enough, this, this old fellow in overalls came. He said, hey, where are you folks from? We're from Atlanta. What do you do in Atlanta? Well, he, 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 he said, I hope that I could put him off a little bit because I, I told him I'm a professor of homiletics. I'm, I'm a preacher. And most people, when they hear you're a preacher, well, that's, that's the end of the conversation. And he said, oh, you, you teach preachers how to preach. Uh, and Craddock was confounded. The old man knew what, what homiletics were. And he pulled up a chair and he said, well, I got a preacher's story for you here. And he said, I bet I've heard this a million times. But he hadn't. The old man started to spin his tail. He said, I was born and raised right here in the mountains of East Tennessee. I never knew who my father was. My mother gave me her name, not my father's name, because she didn't want me to hold a grudge against him. I was born out of wedlock. I, I was an illegitimate child. And back in those days, I was an awful stigma to live with. I always felt bad about myself. When I was growing up, my, my classmates at school, they always had unkind things to say about me. When I went to town on Saturday, I had the feeling that people were always talking about me behind my back. And, and after I was born, my mom, she wouldn't even go to church anymore. She didn't feel welcome there. My, my grandmother, though, she knew how important it was to be there. So every Sunday, she took me to this little Methodist church nestled against the hillside. We just arrived at the service late as it was starting, sit in the back of the church so that we could listen and, and participate and leave before anybody spoke to us. We didn't want to talk to anybody. Hey, I would listen to the preacher, he said, but I didn't get very much out of him. He was a large man with a big booming voice. He had bushy eyebrows that jumped up and down when he talked. He shook his finger a lot at me, and I always had the feeling that he didn't like me, that he was pointing right at me. I was afraid of the preacher, and for 14 years, we'd been going to that little church. And one Sunday, as we started to leave, an usher stopped us, and he said, you can't go out this way. He said, the winter storm has, has blocked this door with ice and snow. You're going to have to go out by the side door. Well, he didn't do that. He wanted to do that because that's where the preacher was. And, and, and so they had to get in the line of the queue to shake the preacher's hand. And as he got up to this preacher, he hoped I can just shake his hand and leave. And sure enough, the boy asked, was asked a question that he had dreaded for 14 years. The preacher looked at him and said, boy, who is your daddy? And this silence after that was deafening the preacher looked at him and said oh wait a minute i see the family resemblance now you're a child of god god's your father now you go claim your inheritance fred craddock said i had been preaching for years but i felt a cold chill go up and down my spine he looked at that old mountaineer and he said would, would you mind telling me your name the old man said my name is ben hooper and Dr. Craddock remembered his own grandfather telling him the story of an illegitimate boy born in the mountains of East Tennessee, a boy who became an attorney, and a boy whom the people of Tennessee later elected to two terms as governor. His name was Ben Hooper. You know, Satan loves to steal identities. He is a thief. He's the father of lies, and heaven testifies about him in Revelation 12.10. 
that Satan is the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night. And sometimes all he has to say to send you into a tailspin is say, you know what you did. Oh, come on, you know. You, you are such a loser. You're such a drunk. You're a waste of oxygen. You're a waste of space on this earth. You know, you know you are such a failure. Your life is so tainted. Your life is so dirty, so irreversibly stained. You know you are, are, are so stupid. You're so slow. You're, you're not handsome. You're lazy. You're unloved. You're alone. You've always been alone. You'll always be alone, you know. So face it, that's just who you are. See, I tell you, shame, it's an extremely dangerous enemy. But shame has an even more dangerous enemy and a more powerful enemy called grace. You see, shame towers over me and tells me that I'm defective. Grace stoops down to tell me I'm valuable. Shame's greatest weapon is the fear of judgment. Grace's even greater weapon is unconditional love. Shame says that because I'm flawed, I'm unacceptable. Grace says that even though I am flawed, I am absolutely priceless. Shame believes that the opinion of the crowd is all that matters. Grace believes only the opinion of God matters. Shame makes us hide. Grace opens the door to set us free. Shame throws rocks. Grace lifts our head. Shame is the language of the thief, but grace is the language of Jesus, the one who got down in the dirt with us. And friends, I just want you to see a sampling as, as we wrap things up here of what God says. This is, this is what he stoops down to write in the dust, so to speak. He says in Isaiah 43, 25, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Isaiah 44, 22, God says, I've swept away your sins like a cloud. I've scattered your offenses like the morning mist. Oh, return to me, for I have paid the price to set you free. Micah 7.19, I've always loved the prophets. Once again, you'll have compassion on us. You will trample our sins under your feet and throw them into the depths of the ocean. And God's got a great arm, by the way. Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Hebrews 10, 17, that he adds their sins and lawless acts, I will remember no more. And then I want to read this one out loud together. This is my daughter's, one of my daughter's favorite verses, Romans 8, 1. Let's do this together. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So can I ask you, where are your accusers now? Where are they? You need to know that God's not afraid to show up right in the middle of your mess. He's bold enough to deal with any dysfunction. He's fearless enough to walk with you through any addiction or hang-up. He's heroic enough to lift you out of any abuse or bullying that you might have known. Jesus is humble enough to stoop down in the dirt to meet you wherever you are, just the way you are. Grace is for everyone. I'm not sure who wrote this, but I like this. It says, ponder the achievement of God. He doesn't condone our sin, nor does he compromise his standard. He doesn't ignore our rebellion, nor does he relax his demands. 
But rather than dismiss our sin, he assumed our sin and incredibly sentences himself. God's holiness is honored, our sin is punished, and we are redeemed. God does what we cannot do so that we can be what we dare not dream. Perfect before God. You see, friends, like I've been praying all week, that I've been praying that you would find God kneeling with you in the dirt today and that you would come face to face with his unconditional love and with his amazing grace.
hope this Thanksgiving and this Christmas season you would get to know the real God. The one who left heaven and moved into our neighborhood. The one who stoops down to meet us where we are. The one who wipes away all the guilt and the shame and the regret and the sin. His name is Jesus. And as you got to know him, I couldn't tell you uh, what would make uh, Billy Ralph Lorax more happier than to know you've accepted him as your Lord and Savior. I'm going to ask you to stay on me again this morning. Can you hear the words of Jesus in Matthew 11? Take my yoke upon you, learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. And for somebody here today, it's time to stop running. It's time to find that rest. It's time to stop letting Satan and the world throw you in the dirt. It's time to see Jesus coming to your level to lift your fallen head and say, I love you. Before we sing our last song, before you're given that opportunity to come and and share your desire to make a decision for Christ as your Lord and Savior, maybe to make this your church home, uh, before you do that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are who we are, and yet you love us still. It doesn't always take somebody throwing us into the dirt. Sometimes we find our way there pretty quickly on our own because we all sin. We all fall short of your glory. But Father, we all have mercy and grace and forgiveness and the greatest love that eternity will ever know when we look to your eyes, when we look to your hand, when we look to your cross, when we look to the empty tomb, And Father, we look to glory for you. I just ask your spirit would move among the lives of your people today that if there's a decision to be made, it's made before they leave this place. Because Father of it all, we need you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.